0: Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
1: The only person who you can guarantee is going to look after you is you. So it's better to build it for yourself, to expose yourself to the upside in exchange for taking on the risk of the downside.
0: Thank you for tuning in today. That was our guest, Keir Flat. He delivers more excellent and thought-provoking insights coming up very soon. Today's episode is sponsored by The Learning Physiotherapist. It's an online mentorship, learning, and networking platform that will bring like-minded, ambitious physiotherapists together on a journey of self-development and growth. Learn from world-renowned mentors in the field of physiotherapy, sports medicine, and healthcare, including Ben I. Matthew, Marita Marshall, Amy Arendale, Dr. Ian Horsley, Nicole Van Dyke, and Stefania Rizzo, to name but a few. Lessons are focused around themes, including effective communication, overcoming setbacks, how to design a career path, and working optimally in a team. The essential skills we need to thrive in our careers. You can check it out at thelearningphysiotherapist.com and you can register your interest for the cohort of 2022.
2: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Keir wenham flat a director at Strength Coach Network and High Performance Consultant. Keir has worked with elite level rugby players globally in places like the UK, China, Australia, Argentina and Japan. He has huge experience in strength and conditioning and helping athletes get the best out of their bodies. Keir has worked with London Wasps rugby Sydney Roosters, the Pumas, Toshiba in Japan and held a director of athletic performance role at William & Mary in Virginia. He's an established presence on social media with Rugby Strength Coach and his Strength Coach Network. Having worked in five different countries at the highest level, including a fourth place finish at the 2015 Rugby World Cup with Argentina, we unpacked cultural diversity experience. Keir talks to us about first principles for aspiring strength coaches and his routine with parallels to Naval Rafikant. We have a very thought-provoking and provocative conversation on standards of testing and accreditation for his sector. We speak about queuing exercises, balance and perspective when children come into the equation, self-determination and ownership. And autonomy. Kier also explores the Kinefin Framework, a sense-making system. It helps managers and leaders better understand the implications of complexity for strategy. Kier, good morning. Thanks very much for coming on the show today. How are you?
1: I'm well, mate. I appreciate you saying good morning because it's it's uh, afternoon for you guys, right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. It's 3 30 here, and you're are you based in Virginia, is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, East Coast, yeah
2: yeah so um be great to get a sense as to you're starting your day now what kind of does a typical day like today look like for you
1: i'm embarrassed to say how lazy i am these days (laughs) um no have you have you ever read um anything by naval ravikant
2: yeah big fans yeah Yeah, yeah
1: so i'm i'm very much like you know like the the lion so i i sprint and then i rest and i have stuff that I know, well, I need to get this done by this time. And then I have a bunch of other stuff to get done. So I, I, I tend to work pretty late in the day. So it would not be uncommon for me to, you know, still be working at like 12, one o'clock at night. Um, and, but then I, I start slow. And then basically I, I wait around until I feel enough self-disgust and uh, anxiety to start working. And then I just get hammered out. <laughs> pounds
0: <laughs> so that yeah. wasn't always the way i'm sure you had you had to work hours that was prescribed to you before what's it been like how much more energy do you get from doing it yourself deciding them hours yourself
1: the energy to me comes from the self-determination it's not necessarily how many hours you do because there there have been times in the last year where because of the way things were with the pandemic and then my kid and stuff like that like i, I would be going from pretty much Six or seven in the morning till like one at night. But I feel like a lot of the energy comes from the self-determinism and the fact that you can actually relate what it is you're doing back to what your objectives are. Because one of the worst things for me about the collegiate environment is how much of your day gets wasted on stuff and it's decided by somebody else for you, which I really don't like.
2: (laughs) And have the objectives shifted? Obviously, you've touched on the kids. Uh, and, yeah. and the rest maybe just naturally as you're evolving in your career have have the goalposts moved a lot in the last couple uh, of years
1: yes i mean i still probably have the same professional goals but the degree of things that i'll sacrifice to achieve that have probably shifted a little bit so i'm adamant that if i'm going to go back to a team it's going to be on my terms and it you know i'm not going to be there 60 70 hours a week and sacrifice my kid's upbringing just for to put myself in that environment again and if it happens great and if it doesn't that's also fine just because i've decided that those things are are more important and obviously it's very it's much much easier to make those decisions when you don't have a child do you know what i mean or when you don't have a functioning business for example because it's very easy if you have no side income to be like yes i will make those sacrifices you know now it's probably got to the point where if i was working for an employer that said, well, you, you can't do business activities on the side or well, they're going to have to put their hand in their pocket for me to do that. And it's, it's unlikely to happen, you know?
2: Like that's pretty profound as well. Right. And I can relate cause I have two kids and it, it completely changes your perspective. Not, not for everyone, but it for should, me, though, it,
1: right? it should, it,
2: it should 100%. And I, I suppose I'm curious as to like, what do you really love to do now? Like you were obviously really skilled and highly competent at your craft and yeah. now, you know, personally, you know, a lot's come into your life. So what do you love to do now? Like what really does get you going?
1: I mean, the, the kind of like glib, facetious answer I give is that I want to make the UK SCA embarrassed to exist, but it's at its worst, a team environment uh, or, or a college environment, which many organizations, especially in college sport, you don't get it so much in the pros, but in college sport, many organizations will talk up a great game about what it is they're about. And in reality, they're just not, they're quite content to be middle of the pack, they're quite content to be losers. And it's it's more about bums on seats or selling a product or oh, you know, we're we're in the community, or this kind of bullshit. And at its worst, if you have that skill set and that experience, which to me, our job is to win. And then you, you find yourself being employed by an organization that's completely at odds with that. I decided, well, I, I can put forth all that effort and it can be on a small scale and actively ignored or not supported. Or I can take that same skill set and just try and express it in a different fashion, which is to try and project how I think things should be done or how we can do things better to the widest audience possible and cut out that middleman of an organization or an institution said, oh, well, you can't say this, or you can't tell this person how to do their job and so on. I'm just going to put it out there anyway. And if people want to pick it up, that's great. And and the marketplace is going to decide. Not to say that I'm the second coming of Christ in s and form and I've got all the answers. Because, you know, here's the thing. Like, I, I was having a conversation the other day about politicians. The problem with politicians is... Anyone that's ever got into politics is arrogant enough to think that they can move the needle and they've got the answers. So it might just be that the best people out there who should be politicians don't have the um, that belief to actually put themselves into that environment. So it it's a tricky thing with uh, putting yourself out there on the internet because you have to have that. You have to tread that knife edge of, well, I'm going to tell people how it's going to be, but then also be like, well, actually, I'm not sure just how it should be.
0: <laughs> and you found that the Strength Coach Network, hugely successful, really shown the benefits of your approach. And you mentioned that you want to show that the UK SCA is embarrassed to exist. For the uninitiated or people not involved, how would you distinguish between both? What What's the Strength Coach Network? How does it differ than UK SCA?
1: I will be fair to the UKCA and say that I, I do not have their qualification. I've never had any interest in being accredited by them and I've not taken their courses. So you can, you can take what I'm going to say with a pinch of salt. I'll be fair to them. This is all reported from people that have been associated with their board, senior assessors, people that have gone through the courses and stuff like that. What I will say is if you read a book called The Sovereign Individual, which has been like one of these, my brain exploded reading this book. But one of the things that it talks about in the book is the concept of monopolies. So monopolies are very, very dangerous things in society, say like at the political level, because anytime someone has a monopoly, they have no incentive to listen and to do better. So for example, when you you take a train in the UK, if you want to go from uh, Northampton, where I'm from, to London... Guess how many train lines you can, uh, you can take to do that? One. <laughs> so they have a monopoly. So they have no incentive to listen to you. That's why the service is shit. That's why the prices are high. That's why the product never gets any better. And if you look at accreditation and who gets to say who's qualified and how things should be done, certainly within the United Kingdom, I can't speak to Ireland, but I think it's, it's the same. The UKSCA has and wants to maintain a monopoly on that within the UK. And if you look at the assessment criteria, there are people on the inside that have said, this is not good enough, right? We are not doing a good enough job of establishing who's a good coach, who's not ensuring quality to the end consumer, right? I've, I've been having conversations with guys for almost 15 years now about, oh, well, this needs to change. But the fact that they have a monopoly and they don't need to change means that the assessment criteria now is as it was 15 years ago, broadly. Can you imagine if you were in business and your customers were telling you 15 years ago, hey, this needs to change? And you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And you don't change for 15 years. You're going to go out of business, right? The existence of the UKSEA has been artificially extended by the fact that they have a monopoly on education and accreditation within the United Kingdom. and. I I feel there's an inherent conflict of interest there. So I had this big argument with one of their board members on Twitter and he kind of chucked it out to me, well, you're just a money grabber. And I said, yeah, you got me. Guess what? I'm in business. People pay me for um, education. They, They feel that they're going to get value in that exchange. They give me money. They get support, education, networking, all that kind of stuff. And as long as they think they get more from that exchange than I do, my business is going to grow and I'm going to stay in business. Here's the thing about the UK SCA. Who do they serve? So if you're in the business of accreditation, any field, who does accreditation serve? It, it serves the end consumer, right? So when you have to go to the DVLA or the Irish equivalent and pass your driving test, are they doing it to protect you or are they doing it to protect other road users? other the road mm-hmm. users, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're erecting a barrier to your participation as a driver mm-hmm. and it protects the end consumer. When you're in the education business, education serves those trying to pass the exam or the accreditation, right? So mm-hmm. if I sell you driving lessons, I want you to pass. Within reason, if I'm taking driving tests, I want you to fail because it makes that qualification more exclusive. And we've actually raised the barrier to entry and we've further protected end users on the road, right? So to have an arrangement in which you act as both accreditor and educator, imagine now if you pass the accreditation, well, that's great for me because my education works and you're going to tell all your friends and you're going to give me money. So when you do well, I do well. If you fail the accreditation, well, guess what? We didn't dilute the qualification. The UK SCA is so hard and exclusive. Isn't this a great qualification to have? And I also do well. So (laughs) to have this relationship where if you do well, I do well, and if you do bad, I also do well, seems to me to be a lopsided relationship and a monopoly that is not helping coaches. It's a
0: well-presented argument. give you that,
1: definitely.
2: (laughs) Kira, what's jumping out to us already is you care about education, adding value, right. To echo Naval Rafikant and his almanac, right. There's very yeah. much similarities there with the strength coach network and even the, the rugby strength coach and, and any of the platforms that you're involved with or, or the, the output that you're creating, what are the big questions that you're really trying to answer to help with those aspiring, inquisitive, innovative strength coaches that are, are trying to find the next step trying to evolve?
1: I, I feel like one of the, the biggest problems that I experienced coming up that other people experience the same is characteristic of what's wrong right now with how departments are run. And you see this in the States. I, I can tell you strength coaches running departments who you would have heard of, they will absolutely ruin members of their own staff if they use even the wrong word to cue an exercise. And because it's America and it's a hugely capitalistic country and we're all about, you know, consistency, branding, product, all that kind of stuff. We've taken this really prescriptive systematic approach to try and solve a problem that is inherently complex. So if you ever read up on something called the Kenevan framework, it was developed by IBM, what it is, is it's a sense making framework. So the, the crux of that framework is how do you know to act until you know what situation you're in? Mm-hmm. So it splits p- problems into four quadrants, the simple, the complicated, the complex, and the chaotic. So simple problems, there is a, there is a right answer. It's very, very obvious, and you can just put your, be- your best foot forward and just be about it. So for example, how do you chop a tree down? You can use a chainsaw, you can use an axe, you can use a saw, but it's pretty much A plus B, right? Yeah. That's a simple problem. A complicated problem is one in which there's a lot of variables and a lot of computation and calculation that goes into it, but there is an optimal solution to that problem. And that would be, for example, NASA sending men to the moon in in 1969. At the time, you know, you have more calculating power in your pocket right now, but they still manage to find the right answer with enough time, money, and calculation, right? Mm-hmm. Complex problems or you know, non-linear systems is where input and output are not directly related to one another. You can have these sudden jumps in the state of the system where you know you're 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 getting input, 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 no change, and then one tiny more piece of input, there's a sudden jump. For example, action potentials, or the transition from walking to running in gait, all these different things. In these systems, there is not predictable relationships between variables. Often they behave in very unpredictable manners. It changes from person to person and according to the circumstances that you find yourself in. So the idea that there is an optimal solution is just inherently flawed. And what are we taught coming up? This is the optimal way to teach this exercise. You know, the UKCA, they'll fail you for not teaching an Olympic lift their way. Um, this is the best separate protocol for this adaptation. This is the best way to do this. When in reality, I think we have to be a lot more open and a lot more diligent in educating people about the nature of the problem that we're operating in and developing ways to approach those problems. And if you read the Kenevan framework, he talks about a probing approach. So this is why I love Nassim Taleb because it's all about risk management and it's all about how to not how to be less wrong rather than more right. So it's these he calls them safe fail experiments, and you just like find what works and start to double down on successes and get rid of failures. And and it's it's a an iterative, gradual approach. The problem is that is way harder to teach and learn than be like oh for hypertrophy do three sets of ten
2: it really echoes a conversation i had with somebody in the states recently about kniffin and yeah. the, you know welsh habitat and snowden and yeah the, the differences when you come to managing complicated like you said we could all yeah. build a ferrari if we're given a manual um, yeah. but then complex person dynamics building a team and then you know just developing things that shift so what about when you're working with working with an athlete or you know there's an aspiring strength coach out there that's looking at your stuff and working with an athlete what are the first principles like what do you really like try to get honed in as foundational keystones for that young strength coach
1: you touched on it first principles so are you familiar with uh, shane Parrish, the knowledge project yeah so that's that's an awesome resource the the podcast the blog and he, he did a, a book uh, on mental models. And I, I'll, you know, I'll plug this, this is on the, the fundamentals course for Strength Coach Network. But like one of the one of the mental models is, is first principles, because in order to have a yardstick to measure the quality of your decision making and your behavior, you have to have a desired end state that you've outlined at the beginning. But what is the desired end state? And you have to keep digging and digging and digging until you can boil down what it's doing to the very essence, in order to have high quality decision making. Because if your if your definition of success is wrong, you're you know you, you've got a GPS that's got the wrong address in, and you're going, you're going to reverse engineer a completely incorrect path. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the goal is to win. So. <laughs> It's going to depend on how much, how much authority, leeway, expertise that you have, who you're working for and when. But ultimately, it's all about winning. Sometimes winning is going to be represented by the greatest sum development of tactical, technical, physical, psychological preparations to produce results on the field. So if you're in a team environment with uh, elite, full-grown men, guess what? LTAD doesn't matter. What they're doing in the offseason doesn't matter. If you have a great offseason but you bomb the league and you get relegated, you're going to get fired. If you win, the, you know, winning is the, the virtue that cleanses all other sins. If you win, congratulations, you get another year in your contract and so on. Hmm. If if we kind of flip that and, and look at the opposite, if you work with youth athletes, if we say, oh, the goal in 10 years is to win, the goal when you're working with youth athletes, is to develop the widest base possible of those, those qualities so that you can reach a higher peak later on. So it's about preparation, long-term development versus readiness. If you work in the private sector, it's pretty much just um, physical qualities. You can't really touch the tactical, technical, or psychological. So then it becomes about speed of movement via enhancement of the CNS, the neuromuscular system, the metabolic system. So it, it can be a moving goalpost. I think it, it heavily context-dependent on what you're doing, but regardless, first principles.
0: So I'll commend you to start this question by saying the Strength Coach Network, and it's doing really well, right? You've started it, you founded it, out, and now you're mentioning stuff from the UK SCA, but yeah. the difference between you challenging that body is that you actually have skin in the game. Again, going back to Mr. Taleb. <laughs> if you make a statement or you have an argument or you forward something against the SEA, it can reflect on your business if you're not doing well. So how important is it for strength coaches when they're challenging the the standard, the traditions to have that skin in the game? So if things don't go well, that affects them too. And how important is that in high quality decision-making?
1: Well, you know, to tie it in with like skin in the game and anti-fragile systems, you want systems in which You're exposed to the upside and the downside, because when you're exposed to the downside, you learn from failures. And ultimately, if there is a catastrophic failure, those those ideas and ways of doing things are removed from the gene pool and everyone sits up and takes notice. So the example that he gives in the book of uh, skin in the game, I believe, and anti-fragility is plane crashes. Every day that you step on a plane in the present, it's never been safer to step on a plane because of the fact that, guess what? Those failures are extremely costly. The the people flying those planes are absolutely exposed to the downside. And it's an iterative, evolving system of of aircraft safety. What you need to avoid is those systems where you're able to dispense with advice, pat yourself on the back when it goes well, Franz Bosch, or (laughs) what you don't want to have is when they fail, you're insulated from that failure or you can wash your hands of it again, Franz Bosch.
0: With the with the Strength Coach Network, would you, would that be something you try and instill early on with, with coaches that you have to have that ability to face the downside?
1: Um I actually think when it comes to individual strength coaches, you're almost too exposed to the downside. Because if you if you look at for example, sport coaches, certainly in America, the way that their contracts are worded, when the team does well, the sport coach gets a bonus, gets an extension and so on. When the team does badly, what's normally going to happen is that the head coach will fire everyone that's not him or her because they it takes a rare individual to fall on their sword. Normally what happens is they get rid of everyone else until it becomes obvious that they're the problem and then they go. But, they're exposed to the downside, right? Team does badly for long enough and eventually they have to go. With the strength coach, the way that the contracts are set up is you're more of a a regular employee in which your wages are rewarded in terms of longevity, which is really a function of how well you're liked and how much you don't rock the boat. That's another discussion. But when you do well, no bonus. Maybe you get an out of boy from the coach, but really there's no change to your day-to-day circumstances. If you do a bad job, they can absolutely fire you. And sometimes you won't even do a bad job and they can absolutely fire you. One of the things that I tried to advocate for at William & Mary was that we needed to create a much stronger relationship for coaches between their efforts and their input and what their subsequent reward was. I was like, why are we not giving people fixed duration contracts and dangling the carrot in front of them and say, if you do do a good job, here's here's the rewards that are on offer. You can come back to the negotiating table. You can also put pools of bonuses in front of coaches. And the the reply is, well, you can't point to anything within a program of, of preparation that the strength coach is solely responsible for. why should you be the only person to receive a bonus, for example, for injuries or physical performance? Because the sport coaches can influence that, the ATCs, the medics, the nutritionists can all influence that, right? But if it's good enough for the sport coaches to get bonuses, they're not solely responsible for performance. It should be good enough for anyone touching that athlete to have the same rights to a pool of bonuses because you wanna create an environment where you rise together and you fall together. And I think that is one thing that if, if you could find an institution that had the balls to do that, it would probably create some pretty motivated and bought in strength coaches. Uh, whereas as, as I touched on the system right now, rewards don't rock the boat, <laughs> especially when you've got huge emphasis being given on evaluation of your ability from sport coaches and athletes who, quite frankly, don't know their soul from their elbow. So really what they're evaluating you on is how much do I like this person? And how much do they let me do what I want to do? The whole role of a coach is mostly getting people to do what they don't want to do. So your your ratings from those people and your longevity, your tenure at a given place is perversely pretty much you not doing your job. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Looking up, looking at your profile, and looking at where you've worked, and kind of what sort of organizations and teams, and quite an amazing constellation you got. Toshiba, we've got Argentina, you've got the Roosters. You've touched on William and Mary. Yeah. Through that whole journey, never mind going into the intricacies of each individual setup where you were. What What has the culmination of it all brought to you? What have you learned from all that? I mean, you've experienced so many different cultures, different languages, different countries. Surely that's given you an awful lot. What has that given you?
1: Everybody always wants to do extra arm work. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: nah, I feel like it is a biceps, triceps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nah I listen, I think there there are, a lot of, there are a lot of cultural things that will change from country to country. And obviously when when you go from East Asia to North America or especially the USA those are basically polar opposites on the collectivist versus individualist societies so in Japan you're expected to sacrifice yourself for the team what can you do for the team they have a phrase the nail that sticks up gets hammered you come to America it's um it should be meritocracy capitalism everybody wants to be that nail they spend their whole lives trying to be that nail standing out all that kind of stuff nonetheless there are universal things that unite every single country not just bicep work everybody wants to feel a part of something bigger than themselves And, you know, I'm I'm not going to be overly dramatic and say, you know, it's like our Navy SEALs or or special forces and stuff like that. But if you do anything on a high enough level, eventually you are going to experience some very tough times and motivation for yourself is relatively weak and quick to expire relative to motivation for other things. So... If you're religiously inclined, God, family, organization, country, all the, all these things, these are the something bigger than themselves that are very, very motivating if they're carefully picked amongst athletes. You know, seeing the RGs, mate, they honestly, you could feel. Like an entire country behind you at the World Cup, and I'm, and you know, I'm not even Argentinian, but I'm, you know, those boys absolutely (laughs) felt it, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they they have a habit of just finding that extra gear when it it gets really, really high pressure, and unfortunately, that's why they also shit the bed and disappoint themselves when (laughs) there's no pressure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we felt it. We felt in that quarterfinal.
1: That was, you know, the stars aligned. That everything had gone well for us, everything had gone bad for them. You know, Paul O'Connell. Yeah. Uh, I think he tore his ACL or broke his leg.
0: Hamstring Johnny kick. Sexton
1: was injured. Ian Madigan had emptied the tank the week before. Sean O'Brien. Um, Sean O'Brien. Is it Sean O'Brien? The Tolo tank? Yeah.
2: We couldn't keep up with him off and the yeah. pace.
1: Yeah, well, you know what it was? And we appeared fitter and faster than Ireland. But I think it was France they played before because it was like whoever won that game we were going to play. Ireland emptied the tank against France that week. And then they had six or seven days to get ready. And we played Namibia with a B team. So, I mean, we played New Zealand in week one. That was a tough game for us. And we kind of, we got through against Georgia. We absolutely pumped Tonga. And then we're like, listen, respect to Namibia. We're probably going to beat them with a B team. So we we put out a B team and then we flogged the boys, like the, the first team boys, the week of Namibia. And then we just cruised into Ireland. And that's why. <laughs> it's just you know luck of the draw.
0: And then going in them environments, the lead up to that World Cup, you had decisions to make about how intense the training would be for the RGs going in. And yeah. some of them had a few weeks off from France. They might have made it, ended the season a bit earlier. Yeah. How, how important are relationships in them fields and the ability to have them discussions about what to do, finding the right answer and actually looking for ultimately the right answer ahead of egos or ahead of what someone believes themselves be right?
1: pretty important because there is no right answer like (laughs) you know you got a guy who's 30 34 35 I think was the oldest guy just played a a tough season in France the French season is long long he's he's been doing you know 16 ounce curls for a few weeks in in the south of France and then oh by the way you got three weeks to get ready for uh, New Zealand there's no right answer to that you know and we ended up watching that camp through our fingers just because you're, you're operating at the absolute limit of what you can tolerate in terms of risk because there is no time. And do you, do you go in against New Zealand undercooked with a view to the World Cup and you get your pants pulled down by New Zealand and everyone's demoralized? Or do you push super, super hard and put in a good account of yourself and break people along the way and maybe you've hurt your chances in the World Cup? Do you know what I mean? There is no right answer. And it's like you have to be – you have to have a good relationship in place with the other stakeholders that you're making those decisions with because when you have your strength coach hat on, you're like, oh, we'll lose against New Zealand. doesn't matter. It's not the World Cup. Whereas the rugby coach is going to be like, no, we are going to go out and put in a good account of ourselves and carry that mental momentum into the World Cup. You have to have good relationships in order to have those disagreements and weather them and be like, well, okay, we're now gonna put our best foot forward. And if someone turns out to be right, there's not gonna be any, I told you so. Or if something does go wrong, like you injure players in camp, it's not gonna be a, well, this is your fault. It's, it's very tough to do. And I think we, we were pretty lucky in that we we had had those relationships. I don't know if those relationships were forged by the fact that we had lost so much and we we felt in it together, or we spent five or six months a year on on the road together, living in each other's pockets. But you know, certainly, I'm I'm still tighter with those individuals and those coaches six years down the line than Toshiba, for example. Yeah. You know, if I saw the head coach from Toshiba across the road. <laughs> huh.
2: Say if we wanted to fly over, and um, you have twenty—I don't know, eighteen or nineteen—year year of age uh, students in front of you, and you know, yeah. have them for an hour. What, what yeah. would we be trying to get across to them? They could be string coaches. They, they yeah. could be just—they could be just people. What are the the messages or the advice or the main suggestions you'd be trying to get across to that group of young boys and girls about to uh, attack the world?
1: Ownership is everything. I, again, I'm not trying to be uh, like this this, this sovereign individual, but like I, I keep talking to everyone about it, but it's one of these things where I, I'm, I'm imagining, how old are you guys?
2: 31, 35.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I mean, they, they talk about in the UK post-recession about the, the lost generation. And I feel like there's probably a lot of people in the Republic of Ireland that feel the same way about you've been left behind and you've kind of been sold a promise about, well, if you, if you do this, 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 you're gonna be looked after and you're gonna be rewarded for that. And I, I feel like for me, my parents' generation was the last generation where that was the case. I One of the things that I've learned the hard way and it, it gets revealed to you the more and more you do it is that the only person who you can guarantee is gonna look after you is you. So it's better to build it for yourself to expose yourself to the upside in exchange for taking on the risk of the downside. I, I feel like the, the best life you can live is one in which you have freedom of choice and that comes with risk. But you, you wanna live in a way you can work with whoever you want, talk to whoever you want, say what you want, do what you want. Take the benefits that come with that and then take the risks and consequences. And one of the things that the book talks about is you, you are not free when the cost of doing violence against you is low. But the book also talks about violence doesn't just have to be physical. It can be economic. So when you know, why, does, why does China hate Bitcoin? Because they can't come and just snatch it up and take it away from people. You know what I mean? Social violence. Why do people hate Dave Chappelle? Because they're trying their hardest to drag him through the mud and cancel him, and he's like, "No, you can't touch me." Sorry, too late. Twenty million dollars, too late. So it's all these different things where if somebody wanted to come up to you and take it away from you and ruin you, the harder it is for them to do that. To me, the better a life you're living. And that's not me. You know, I I don't own guns. I'm not a violent person. But like, I'm. The longer I'm going, the more I'm trying to build a life where I'm building it for myself. You can try all you want. You're not going to take it away from me. And this is the thing. I was talking to Ollie Richardson yesterday for my podcast. The the problem with professional sport is that you you can be ruined socially in that you can be blackballed. You can be ruined financially financially. snap of the fingers because it's not like you're a sport coach getting a five million dollar buyout it's like oh you're fired here's six months money you know your your life's work can also be taken away from you even if you're just doing it for professional reasons you can have your life's work taken from you in a day so it's such a, a fragile existence that's in somebody else's hands it's it's quite baffling sometimes where when people are the victim of a system like that their first instinct is to go on LinkedIn and do their hardest to get back into a system that just did that to them. And it's kind of like bad wife syndrome. Like, Oh, this time it's going to be different. Never is different. Right.
2: I sound negative. (laughs) No, no. What you were just going to say, we were just saying it off air. Really appreciate the honesty. Right. And like the, you're, you're telling stories, but backed by experience and you know, you've been there, done that. So it's, it's fair for you to give, it's fair for you to say that. And I think, those, there's lessons in that and there's lessons into what you said. And, you know, we, we can relate. We, yeah. we are trying to, we understand boundaries, but we've built an awful lot of autonomy, independence yeah. over the last couple of years, two of us here in this room, and it's helped. It's helped yeah. a lot. Well, it's l-
1: helped.
2: I can hang with my little man in an hour, no problem.
1: Yeah, well, I'll give you two positive examples, though. Two people that have done it on their own terms, and if they were to lose those jobs tomorrow, wouldn't blink an eye Eric Cressy, Eric Cressy has a functioning business. He's built his own name. Uh, He's got multiple facilities and the Yankees paid him a million bucks a year to be a high performance director. Do you think he needs that million? No. Do you think he needs that job? No. If they were to fire him tomorrow, he's good. Mike Boyle did it for um, the, was it the Red Sox? It was one of those teams up in uh, Boston. And uh, yeah, i got a mate who's he's done, done the same deal with one of the major league rugby teams uh, over here. He, they were like, oh, we're interested in you uh, doing some work for us. He's like, okay, visa. Here's, my, here's, my, num- here's my, uh, my number that I want. Here's what I want. Boom, 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 boom. And it's just a nice bonus. And I think it, the best reason to coach is because you want to, not because you have to, because then it, it makes it more of a pure endeavor. Now, it takes a very, very long time to build the circumstances that allow you to do that. Um, but ultimately, I think your life ends up so much better as a consequence.
2: Okay, we have one last question for you. And again, just to priceless, lots of wisdom, really appreciate the, um, the wholeheartedness coming through everyone that comes on the show, we always ask them, what does high performance mean? You've been around so many different environments. You've met so many different people. You're, you've got your own successful businesses. What does high performance mean to you?
1: Context dependence. (laughs) Uh, Could have guessed guessed that answer, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it really does depend. I think if you look at the, the hours per week, and if you look at the span of your life, what we do really does represent a tiny piece of our lives. Uh, it, it feels like it takes over your life when you're in it, but you know there's not, there's not many 70-year-old strength coaches out there. To, to be a winner and to have you know, a cabinet full of medals and all that stuff and to, uh, to not be a winner in life is, is a poor deal. You know i I know of a guy that he he's won a lot of big championships, big, big championships, and you would have heard of this guy, and his son committed suicide. So do you think that he would give back those medals to have his son back? Yeah, absolutely. and um i uh, i i I think if you if you look at it just in terms of sport, yeah, it's all about winning but then you start to be like well it has to be the right kind of when you don't want to be east germany giving steroids to kids and it has to not come at the 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 expense of your family life and oh well I don't want to be poor for the rest of my life it's a tough question to answer it's very intangible and it's it's kind of like wishy-washy but like do do you feel like you what you're doing makes a difference and can you look in the mirror at the end of the day and the answer for me has been no sometimes. And that's when I found myself like, right, I need to get out of here really quick.
2: Caravan and Flat, we'd like to really thank you for, for giving us your time. We got a lot from that. That was amazing. Thank you. Appreciate you. Yeah, appreciate my pleasure, yeah. It. Stay well, stay healthy and um, look, we'll be in touch. Thanks a lot.
1: Likewise, cheers.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A-L-I-F dot Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan